As we continue uh, this morning a series of sermons on biblical foundations for change, let me invite you to open your Bible to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. And we will read verses 15 and 16 out of 1 John, chapter 2. Today we're going to be looking at the expulsive power of a new affection. And uh, right now, uh, they, that title may not mean much to you, but it is my hope that it will by the time we're done. So hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you would grant to us ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church. And we pray that as we uh, together feast upon this passage, you would uh, do the secret work in our hearts that is supernatural, that you will show us Jesus and him only, and that we will leave this place encouraged, built up, uh, excited about, vivified by, animated by, the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure I have the year right. I am not really good with dates, but I think it was last Christmas, correct me if I'm wrong, over here, that I went to see a movie called The Greatest Showman. Was that last year? Two years? Two years ago? Well... I really have a good memory about that. Maybe I shouldn't say anything except I have a script here. Okay. Went to see a movie called The Greatest Showman. It's about P.T. Barnum. And musicals are not usually my favorite genre of movies. Sometimes I just want to scream back at the screen, Enough already! Just talk. <laughs> but that's just me. And I know other people love them. And I thought this was pretty well done. It was subtle, it was meaningful, it was compelling and entertaining pretty much all at once. And one of the themes of the movie that I chewed on for months after watching it is idolatry. And one scene in particular stood out, the snare of the adulteress. By the middle of the film, film P.T. Barnum, Hugh Jackman, by the way, has established his empire through his circus. He has wealth, he has acclaim, he has power, yet we see that even now what he doesn't have is contentment. There's something missing. He's been gazing upon and striving after the desires of his heart. He's achieved all his success expecting that he would find satisfaction. But satisfaction is not there. Um, 
he hasn't found satisfaction. He hasn't found the rest he was expecting, his success and his status to provide. And during the song in the movie, the song called Never Enough, performed by Lauren Allred, it's during this song that we see Barnum most enraptured by his idol. We watch him gaze upon everything he's ever dreamed of, beauty, world-renowned fame, ever-abounding wealth, and he's transfixed by it. He's captivated by the experience of his deepest wants on full display before him. And his gaze is locked upon it, so much so that he can't hear the irony of the lyrics declaring that the life he's lusting after simply serves to mask the aroma of death and, the, and that the life he is living is producing. So as the camera focuses in on Barnum watching the performance, we hear the words, he doesn't, the words, he's missing. And they are all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be what? Enough. Will never be enough. We understand that no, no matter how many eyes look to him in adoration, no matter how many times he does what his impoverished upbringing says he shouldn't have been able to do, it won't be enough to fill the hole in his soul. He either doesn't hear it or he doesn't want to hear it, and his idol has totally overwhelmed him. And he can see nothing other than more desire. He follows after his adulteress as complacently as an ox goes to the slaughter. Having been persuaded by her, seductive speech and succumb to the lure of wealth, power, and desire. His adulteress was not a woman. It was wealth, power, and desire. His example of idolatry may seem extreme to many of us. It's not likely that we will ever reach the heights of Barnum, as in this film, but the question scene poses, uh, the scene poses remains applicable for every one of us. What are you gazing at? What are you gazing at? What is your heart gazing at? Gazing, by the way, isn't necessarily wrong as long as we evaluate the object of our gaze. When we see something we like, when we see something we love, something that resonates deep within us, we don't just look at it. We fix our eyes upon it. We stare at it. We observe it. We contemplate it. And as we look at P.T. Barnum, what we need to do first, of course, is to remove the speck in our brother's eye. Uh, it's easier to remove the speck in Barnum's eye than it is to take the log out of our own eye. It's easy to see where P.T. Barnum gets it wrong, but less easy to identify problem areas in our own heart. That's what the sermon is about this morning. It is about the expulsive power of a new affection. Let me begin by reading uh, in the bulletin on the first page the quote by Thomas Chalmers, who is a well-known Scottish preacher in both the 18th and 19th century. And Chalmers said this in his famous sermon entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. 
Seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by the mere force of mental determination. Reason and willpower are never enough. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. How many of you were ever expelled from school? No, don't raise your hand. I don't want you to do that. Because somebody up here might have to raise his hand. But you know what expulsive means, right? It means to drive something out. And the amazing insight that the Scottish preacher has for us is that we never get to a place of neutrality. In other words, it's like when Jesus talked about casting out a demon and seven more worse than the demon uh, that was cast out comes in to inhabit the person. Uh, we're never neutral. We never live with a void. And so we need to be aware of that as we think about these things. But let's look really quickly at the text that is before us today before we plunge in to understand what Carlisle was driving at. And the text is in 1 John that we're not to love the world. Now, what he's saying here, he's not saying that we're not to love and appreciate the created order. He is certainly not saying we're to hate people. He's, he's certainly not saying we are to reject everything about this world. Basically, what the writer here is saying to us in this passage is, is we are not to love the values of this world. Uh, we are to love the being of this world, but we're not to love the values or the corporate manifestation of the desires that he lists in the next verse. Now, when I grew up and went to church, that wasn't the message I heard often. Um, what I heard when we were told not to love the world was we didn't need to be worldly Christians. We needed to get the world out of us. The problem was the church was there was too much world in the church and not enough church in the world. They always had those slogans, and I'll never forget them to my nausea at this point. It, it, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to hate culture. There's nothing meritorious about being a cultural Philistine. Nothing. But when I grew up, this verse was often interpreted to mean, usually first, you should never listen to rock and roll music. Ever. Don't you know that when they play rock music to plants, that they wither and die? But when they play classical music to plants, they straighten up and grow and reach for the sky. So you're never to listen to rock music. And uh, there was a group that came through the church I was attending, and they were very fundamentalistic, and they were very persuasive, and they were all neat and clean, and they all looked like the Lawrence Welk show. And, and, and they convinced me to throw away a collection of 600 albums. Three months later, I'd bought 75 of them back. Why? Because they told me that was worldly. They told me that listening to that kind of music would stir passions in me and cause me, you know, drums. Many people in church think drums are from the devil. And I remember uh, Larry Norman, who was a Christian rock musician, and he said, in response to this kind of cultural antipathy, he said this, 
Why should the devil have all the good music when Jesus rocked away all my blues? Now you react about the same way the Baptist church I went to did. <laughs> but I was told that. I was told that listening to rock music and, you know, having a tattoo or having long hair was like serving a T-bone steak on a plate of manure. That's what I was told. And that there ought to be a difference and that Jesus really likes Southern gospel, but he hates everything else. And I thought, if that's what we're going to be singing in heaven, I'm not real happy about that. Um, so we had to overcome worldly styles of dress in this church I went to. Christian guys were supposed to wear ties. They had to have short haircuts, and they never grew beards or mustaches, and they never got tattoos, ever. That was sacrosanct in the churches I grew up in. I remember when I joined this particular church, I had hair that was really long. I mean, long hair. And so I went up front and became a member, and as the people were coming by to greet me and welcome me in the church, a little man that must have been about 80 years old walks up to me. He didn't stick out his hand to shake it. He just looked me straight in the face, and he handed me a little piece of paper folded over. You know what that piece of paper said? Get a haircut. No, it said 1 Corinthians 11, 14, Does not nature itself teach you? It is a shame for a man to have long hair. And so I got a haircut, but I looked like the Dutch boy on a paint can. <laughs> and I go to this seminar, this world-famous seminar by this world-famous Christian. And so he's up there lecturing. I'm sitting next to my brother. He has a little longer hair than I do. I have pretty long hair. And the man of all the Gauls stands up and says, if you have, you're a male and you have long hair, you are sexually deviant. You are headed for sexual, <laughs> abnormal, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, depraved sexual stuff. Now, I looked at my brother out of the corner of my eye. He looked at me, and I said, you ready to go? Because there were 9,000 people there, and it was just me and my brother. But we toughed it out. But it was embarrassing. Every eye was upon us at that moment. And I'm thinking, is this what it means to be worldly? Is this what John's driving at? And over the years, I have learned that it's far easier to do all of those things and still be as stinking worldly as anybody there is. Because worldliness is not a matter of the outward man. It's a matter of the desires of the heart. And you can paint all that up and you can fix it up and you can put lipstick on a pig all day but never change the nature of that person. And so I was, I went through a, a real quandary over those times of being told that. And then one day I read the next verse which says, for all that is in the world, this is what, this is what we're supposed to be dealing with. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. That's what worldliness is. That's inside of us. You can't fix that by fixing the outside of us. And there's still people today who believe that. They believe that. And I'm sad for them. I love them some days. Some days I struggle. <laughs> but it's, it's amazing. Now, 
what is the point of our message? Because you're not listening fast enough, and I hadn't even got out of the starting gate. Chalmers, who uh, Sinclair Ferguson said, is one of the most remarkable men of his time. He was a mathematician. He was an evangelical theologian. He was economist, or economist, excuse me, ecclesiastical, political, and social reformer, all wrapped up in one person. His most famous sermon was published under the unlikely title, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In it, he expounded the insight of permanent importance for Christian living. You cannot destroy love for the world merely by showing the emptiness of it. You cannot destroy it by showing the emptiness of it. Even if we could do so, that would lead only to despair. The first world-centered love of our hearts can only be expelled by a new love and affection for God from God. The love of the world and the love of the Father cannot coexist. They cannot dwell together in the same heart. But the love of the world can be driven out only by the love of the Father, therefore the title. True Christian living, that is holy and right living, requires a new affection for the Father as its dynamic. Now, one author who wrote a great deal on the subject of spiritual affections was, of course, our wonderful friend, Jonathan Edwards. But I'm reading you what somebody else read from Edwards and put it into English and made it simple which is how I have to read Edwards sometimes. So what in the world are these affections? What are they? What what does it mean to say uh, the expulsive power of a new affection, overcoming affections of the heart? And so if you look up Webster, you will find that he defines affection this way. Fond attachment, devotion or love, and affections plural as emotion, feeling, sentiment, or the emotional realm of love. But when Edwards talked about it, he talked about something far stronger than the first definition and more encompassing than the second definition. For him, the affections are the strongest motivations of the human self, ultimately determining everything the person is and does. Fond attachment is far too weak and far too limited to describe these powerful wellsprings of the human behavior. The Bible tells us, keep your heart with all what? Diligence. For out of it flows what? Life. The issues of life. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. They're talking about affections. Now, the second definition restricts affections to mere feelings of love. But as uh, as we understand, Edwards, when he speaks of affections, motivate not just feeling but thoughts and actions as well. He defines the affections as strong inclinations of the soul that are manifested in thinking, feeling, and active. And he uses the word soul as the deepest, most essential part of being a human person. What the Bible calls the heart. By inclination, he means an attraction toward an object or a distaste that leads away from an object. 
We might call it liking or disliking, approving or rejecting. For, for example, my wife has a very strong affection for the ocean. That's her happy place. She loves the ocean. Um, she loves the smell of salt in the air. She likes watching the tide go out and come in. She likes body surfing on the waves, walking along the beach early in the morning, as well as at sunset. And her strong inclination of the soul draws her toward the ocean. Even if we can't get in it, she just wants to see it. She wants to think about it. She wants to visit it. She wants to enjoy it. And that strong inclination of her soul would be what we would call an affection. On the other hand, an affection can be a very strong dislike of something. For example, men dislike shopping malls as a general rule. We're hunters. We're gatherers. If we go in a store or in a mall, we already have in mind exactly what we're going to get, and our goal is to get in there as fast as we possibly can, find it, pay for it, and get out. <laughs> One man told me he thought hell was a shopping mall with no exits. <laughs> so people have an aversion toward those kind of things. They don't like being there when they're forced to be there. They grit their teeth. They look bored. Uh, they walk around constantly. The inclination of a man's soul sometimes steers them away from something like a shopping mall and inspires unpleasant thoughts and feelings. This is also what Edwards means by an affection. So the affections are of two kinds, by which the soul is drawn to an object and those which cause the soul to oppose and draw away from the object. Of the first kind of affections are love, desire, joy, and gratitude, and others. And of the second kind, there are hatred, fear, anger, and grief. Affections can either be good or bad. In the Bible, some affections lead us toward God, and others lead us away from God. The first are called holy affections. The second are called unholy affections. Not all inclinations are affections. They can be just mild preferences. But affections are strong and vigorous inclinations of the soul. Because they were, are, are so strong, they will affect not merely uh, the person's thinking, but their feeling and action as well. So that is what we mean by the expulsive power of a new affection. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about that. And so that helped me understand more of what we're trying to understand here. Now, true Christian living, true spirituality uh, is living requires for its dynamic a new affection from the Father and for the Father. And such new affection is part of what the hymn writer, William Cowper, who suffered with depression constantly, he called the, the blessedness I knew when I first saw the Lord. A love for the holy that seems to deal our carnal, our fleshly affections a deadly blow at the beginning of the Christian life. I, I remember when I was converted, I remember saying to the people around me, I'm never going to sin again. I mean, I, I, I got it. <laughs> he said it, I got it. I was caught up in it. 
And I said, I'm never going to sin again. And about a week and a half later, I did some big technicolor. I wouldn't have known I was sinning otherwise. I did something just big, fat, juicy technicolor sin. And I thought, oh, no, I'm not saved. I'm not saved. I mean, how could I do that? But I remember the flooding of just new affections in my soul. God had done surgery on my heart. He had changed me. And I was a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's precisely what Paul means when he says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, that is, united to Christ by faith, he is a new creature. The old is passing away, and the new has come. The realities of the new covenant, the indwelling, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in my soul, he does not come along alone, but he comes with new affections in our heart that begin to stir us to crave and long for and want Jesus. That's what happens. But here's also what happens. Sometimes we are told at the beginning of the Christian life we believe so strongly that we have died to sin in Christ, but we later discover that sin hasn't by any means died in us. We discover that our new affections for spiritual things must be renewed constantly throughout the entirety of our pilgrimage, our walk with the Lord. If we lose our first love, we will find ourselves in serious spiritual danger. The Lord Jesus, the risen, ascended Lord Jesus in his letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 3 mentions one church in particular, the church at Ephesus. And he says many, many great things about that church. He is highly complimentary of that church. But there, he brings out one condemnation or one thing he points out that's wrong. He says, nevertheless, you have left your first what? Love. You've left your first love. Some of us can remember falling in love with our wife the first time. That's, that's the uh, nomenclature we use to describe it, falling in love. But you just can't get enough. You want to be with them. You want to see them. You want to talk to them. Uh, there are not enough hours in the day. And, you, and when you're away from them, you can't wait till you get up and go back and get with them. But then you're married 40 years, and you go, well, you know, I'm not going to retire. I can't be home with her all day. No, <laughs> uh, don't say that. That's not true for some of us. But, but we as Christians can leave our first love. And Jesus is no longer your heart's whole desire. Your heart starts longing for what he calls, John, things of the world. That's worldliness. Worldliness is the result of idolatry. Worldliness is the result of wanting something in creation more than I want the Creator. It is, it is trusting in and looking to something. You know, I may tell you all day, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior and I love Him, but He's not my functional Savior if I'm trusting in everything else to make me happy. 
In other words, he's, he's, he's not a functional God for me. He's just a God to get me into heaven. He's just a God that I'm glad I know that he saved me, that he forgave my sins, but he's not messing around in my heart. But the new affections are the powerful result of the new birth, of being born again or born from above. And so, Sometimes the continued influence of indwelling sin trips us up and surprises us and overwhelms us in one of its manifestations and we realize that this thing called new affections that were given to us at spiritual birth need to be maintained and cultivated and devoted to. That's how you change is the expulsive power. And so these new affections have a way of driving out the old affections. You'll see this often in Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 4, he tells us to put off certain behaviors and to put on other behaviors, like taking off clothes and putting on other clothes. And what he's saying there is, set your affections on things above, where Christ is with God, Colossians 3. And then he tells us to put to death all these worldly affections, and then he tells us to add to our life all of these spiritual, the fruit of spiritual affections. That's how progress occurs in the Christian life. But sometimes we make the mistake of substituting other things for it. That is the new affection. For example, let's say activity and learning. We become active in the service of God. We become even active in the church and we gain the positions once held by people who we admired all of our lives. And we tend to measure our spiritual growth in terms of whatever position we achieve and we become active evangelistically and in the process measure spiritual strength in terms of increasing influence. Or we become active socially uh, in moral and political campaigning and measure growth in terms of involvement. Alternatively, we recognize that the intellectual fascination and challenge of the gospel and, our, and devote ourselves to understanding it, perhaps for its own sake, perhaps to communicate it better to others. We even measure our spiritual vitality in terms of understanding or in terms of influence it gives us over others. But no position or influence or evolvement can expel love for the world from our hearts. Indeed, they may even be expressions of that very love, that is love for the world. Thus he speaks of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Spiritual pride is so very dangerous. And so very subtle. And it's just like pride you find in, wor in the world. It's come to the church. And there's this, this contemptuousness that we saw in Simon in Luke chapter 7 when the, when the woman came and made the big scene with Jesus. And he immediately judges her and he judges Jesus and he assumes he's better than both. And sometimes we try for whatever reason, we're driven, for whatever reason, to be holier than God is. Now, not too many people do that, but there's some that do. Others of us make the mistake of substituting the rules of godliness or piety for loving affection for the Father. 
and we operate by the Colossian motto of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Such disciplines have an air of sanctity, sanctity about them, but in fact have no power to restrain the love of the world in our hearts. That's what causes conflict, by the way, is warring in our souls are the lusts, the cravings, the, in the Greek, epithumia, over-desires. Over-desires. And so, here's how it works. Satan, the devil, uses the worldliness in a heart to attract us to sin by dangling that before the heart possessed with the old affections. And so growing is much more than that. Worldliness has to be expelled. There has to be a new affection. It's all too possible in different ways to have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. The root of the matter is not on my table or in my neighborhood, but in my heart. Worldliness has not been expelled. And so, love for the world will not have been expunged but merely diverted. Only a new love is adequate to expel the, only one, uh, the old one. Only love for Christ with all that it implies can squeeze out of my heart the love for the world. Only those who long for Christ appearing will be delivered from a Demas-like desertion caused by being in love with the world. You remember Paul spoke of Demas in 2 Timothy. Demas has forsaken me. He has, he has fallen for the world. He's deserted. So, as we think about this, how can we recover affection for Christ and his kingdom that so powerfully impacted lifelong worldliness and in which we crucified the flesh with its lust? What was it that created Christ, that first love for Christ in the original case? Or first love in any case? Do you remember what it was that created love for Jesus? It was our discovery of the matchless, wonderful, awe-inspiring, indescribable grace of God. And at the same time, our realization of our own sin. You remember the conversation? See the woman, the prostitute, taking the ointment and uh, putting it on the feet of Jesus, covering his feet with kisses. What is she doing? Everything she's doing is a demonstration of love and devotion. And how does a woman who has lived like that become a woman at the feet of the Jesus doing that without any shame or embarrassment or any shame of being pointed at or laughed at or mocked? What drove her to do it? She knew she was a sinner. She knew she was wretched before the holiness of God. But she also knew the love of Jesus Christ. And her actions, her loving much, was a demonstration that she knew she had been forgiven much. Here's where we go wrong. We do not allow the beauty and glory of Jesus manifested most clearly in the gospel to continue to have influence in our hearts. And here's what happened to me. 
I don't know about you, can't speak to you, because I don't know you, I don't know your heart, but I know mine. And mine was, I sort of saw spiritual progress as a way of becoming more spiritual and more holy to live where I didn't so desperately need Jesus that much. And so for me, spiritual maturity was, you know, kind of like, I'm not a baby having to be walked along by his dad or I I don't have to be led along. I don't have to have a spiritual walker with me to get to where I want to go. But what happened was I, I found myself getting more and more independent of Jesus, depending subtly more and more on myself, and I'm no match for worldly affection. Adam has amazing resurrection powers in the heart of every one of us. We died in Christ, but the sin in us still rages. And it wasn't until I learned to fasten my heart and focus my heart upon Jesus because he was what created that love. And as I remembered it, as I I remembered the discovery of his grace, um, and, and as I saw my own sin, I began to see, God began to show me sin in new ways that I never saw before. And it was like walking into the Grand Canyon and looking down and go, that's my heart. I mean, it's just a Grand Canyon vista of my sin. And I began to see, I need Jesus now more than ever. And that is one of the greatest marks of holiness. One of the greatest marks of holiness and one of the greatest characteristics of humility is not needing Jesus less, but needing Jesus more and living at his constant mercy. And if you don't see that happening in you, maybe right now the ascendancy in your heart, as has been true in my heart, is for the world. You want glory. You want to be loved. You want everybody to love you. You want everybody to admire you. You want to be noticed. You want to be elevated. You want to be the person. And that drive in you is gobbling up any kind of love for Jesus. And so, that woman who anointed Jesus' feet loved him much and Simon the Pharisee the holy guy who is a whitewashed tomb inhabiting dead men's by by dead men's bones Jesus said that Pharisee that strict religious person didn't see his sin at all therefore he had what no use for Jesus not really what do I need him for I can be holy by being a Pharisee I don't need him And if I slip up, I can go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. And I'm fine, but I don't need Jesus. And the wonderful thing is, once we see Christ, and we see his glory, and we see his supernatural love for us, and we see that that love was poured out in us by the Holy Spirit, And we begin to love him, forgiven much, we love much, we rejoice in the hope of glory, even in our suffering, even in God himself, this new affection seemed first to overtake our worldliness, then to master it. Spiritual realities, Christ, grace, scripture, prayer, fellowship, sacrament, service, living to the glory of God, begins to fill our vision. It's a love problem. That's what it is.
because you do what you love. You and I, we do what we love. And we live by a liturgy. You came into the service today, we have a liturgy that we go through that we follow in order of worship. It's very practical. We do certain things at certain times. And it's all to instill in our hearts the glory of Jesus and cause those new affections in us to blossom and to love him. But if you're not into that, you're doing a liturgy, okay? You're doing an order of service and worship, but it's not for him. It's for something else. And so... As we begin to be, our vision begins to be filled with the reality of the truth, then everything else shrinks in size and becomes bland to the taste. Here's how Jonathan Edwards described spiritual affections. He said, you can look, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, okay? I have to do this. He, said, <laughs> he says, you can look at a jar of honey from Gilcrease Orchard all day. And you know it's sweet, and you've heard it's sweet, and everybody tells you it's the best honey in the whole world, especially if you have allergies. Go buy this honey, eat it. You'll be a new person, right? But you will never know whether that honey is sweet until you what? Taste it. And that is what the expulsive power of a new affection is. It is tasting Jesus and his love. That's what it is. And that changes us. That imbues us with spiritual power in our lives. The way in which we maintain the expulsive powers of a new affection is exactly the same way we first discovered it. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so go on walking in him. It isn't learning anything profoundly new as much as it is going back to the beginning. Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther said that sanctification, at least one part of it, growing in grace and holiness, is uh, just getting used to your justification. And what he meant by that is we're always beginning again. We're always beginning again. We're always going back to that mercy we first knew. And in the same way, only when grace is still amazing to us, uh, does it retain its power inside of us? And only as we retain a sense of our own profound sinfulness can we retain a sense of the graciousness of grace. The way in which we maintain it is the way we got it in the first place. Many of us share Cowper's sad question, where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word. Let us remember, as Jesus said to the church of Ephesus in the book of Re Revelation, let us remember the height from which we have fallen, repent and return to these first works. It would be as sad if the deepest analysis of our Christianity was that it lacked a sense of sin and a sense of grace. I had a, a, a man in one of my churches uh, who's a good man. Uh, he's a better man than I am in many ways, and I knew that. And he never bothered me much, but he, he came to me one day and said, I need to have lunch with you. Well, we ate, and I could tell he had something in his craw, something he wanted to say. I mean, you can tell. Uh, and so after we ate, we went 
sat on a bench in front of the lake, and he looks at me and he says, I have to tell you something. I said, is it good? <laughs> he said, well, it could be if you listen. I said, all right, fire away. He said, you talk about sin too much. Now, if you know me, there were 9,000 rebuttals <laughs> twirling in my mind to say back to him. But I, I looked at him and I said, well, that could be true. It is possible that that could be true. I said, but you don't talk about Jesus enough. You're a sin manager. That's what I said to him. You're a sin manager. You think if you can manage not to be too bad, you're okay. I said, but you in this whole conversation has n have never mentioned the love of Jesus Christ once. I don't know if he likes me or not today. I did not talked to him in a while. There's <laughs> a lot of people like that in my life. <laughs> you hope when you tell him stuff like that, he was hoping he would really put me in my place. I might have been thinking the same thing. I can't say. But I will tell you this. You will never see how sinful you really are until you see how much Jesus loves you. And you will never see how much Jesus loves you till you see your sin. And that seeing of the love of Christ has a power in us to expel worldly passions from ascendancy in our hearts. They never completely go away. Not until glory. Not until we see Jesus and we become like him for we shall see him as he is. And we'll be transformed and there will be no more sin. No more sorrow, no more grief. No more need of falling on our face and confessing our sin because there won't be any sin when we see his glory. But this is how you keep your relationship with Jesus fresh and alive. The expulsive power. You have to know this. If you ever expect to see any change, how does an addict to anything change the expulsive power of a new affection I don't care what you're addicted to I don't care what you're obsessed with I don't care how much you know I asked somebody one time who I knew who quit smoking I said how did you quit smoking cigarettes got to be careful <laughs> cigarettes I said how'd you quit and they said I wanted not to more than I wanted to I said, how'd you get to that place? And she said, Jesus. That's how I got to that place. Jesus. Jesus took it away. And that is the only way. Everything else, cosmetic, facade, it's like lipstick on a pig. It doesn't change us. But seeing Jesus and his grace changes us. Changes us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth. And we pray that as we grow in Christ, we will see more and more the loosening of the grip that the world has on us. And we will see more and more the beauty, glory, suitability, and attractiveness of Jesus for our soul. 
And we pray that you will drive the expulsive power of a new affection deeply into our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. We also pray that as we take this offering, that it would be used in ways that lift up and exalt the name of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.